I often meet people who say, oh, I, the first time I ever understood what design was, it was Thinking with Type, my type book. And that really means a lot to me because that book and many of my other books are intended to be invitations to enter the practice. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. Ellen Lupton is a design thinker of the highest order. As curator of contemporary design at Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum in New York City, she has produced numerous exhibitions and books, including Thinking with Type, which is used by students, designers, and educators worldwide. In 2007, Lupton was awarded the AIGA Gold Medal, one of the most prestigious honors given to a design educator in the U.S. for her role as director of the Graphic Design MFA program at Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore. Late last year, Ellen and I met in New York as she was preparing to launch her latest book, Design is Storytelling. In a lively and engaging conversation, we discuss the many ways in which the tenets of great narrative apply directly to design. She draws intriguing parallels between a well-designed experience and the classic archetype of the heroic journey in literature. Citing IKEA as a case study for a real-world designed environment paralleling this narrative construct, Ellen takes us through the retail process as a great storyteller would. It is an excursion complete with detours and digressions and capped off by the obligatory denouement of the cheap hot dog. Finally, Ellen reflects meaningfully on her role as an educator and the importance of approaching design as a sensory experience. We learn from her about the physicality of the process of making and about how the encounter with materials guides that process. She cites in our conversation the famous quip about Michelangelo, that every block of stone has a statue inside it and it is the task of the artist to release it. The same might be said of Ellen's approach to design. She uncovers dimensions and shapes and contours of a discipline that excite the spirit and dazzle the imagination. You uh, have a book coming out now, or it is out, and it's called Design is Storytelling. Yes. So I think a great way for us to begin this is to talk about your book and really get a sense of it. Sure. So the book is a set of tools for designers to think about many different aspects of the storytelling enterprise and how that can connect to design. So we look at... uh, Techniques for mapping the user interaction, uh, emotional engagement, uh, personas, um, perceptual excitement, you know, how to, how to get people engaged through their senses with design. And it's really speaking to the expansion of design in today's culture where we no longer focus on a finished artifact a monument, a logo, a thing in a box. But but designers are thinking much more about how people interact with what we do over time. And stories are a really useful way for thinking about that. 
because a story is temporal. A story is a set of events that mm-hmm. take place in time. Mm-hmm. And if we start to think about design as always having a temporal aspect, I think it's a really powerful way to get people to open up their understanding of what they're doing and why. It's a view on, a lens on design. Yes. Right. And a way in which you can talk about the experience of design as you perhaps would talk about a reader experiencing a story or a narrative or a listener experiencing a narrative or a play or something like that. Yes. So it is about experience. And experience is really the dominant frame now that designers are using to think about their work. One of the things you explore is the journey of the central figure or the hero. And that, I think, is a great example of what you're talking about. So maybe to concretize it, it'd be interesting sure, to hear about that. Sure, sure. So one of the patterns that we explore in the book is the hero's journey. And this is an archetypal model of how stories work that goes back to Ulysses and his travel through the seas, but into contemporary times, The Wizard of Oz, Star Wars, Mad Max, Fury Road, this model of the hero receiving a call to go on a mission and then entering a strange new world full of hazards and challenges and then being reborn. This is the circle of the hero's journey. And we can see this repeated in literature and drama through the ages and across cultures. But it's also a really great model for thinking about designing a place or designing an experience, designing a product, because we want our user to get this call to enter a new place, a new world, to pass through a portal from the ordinary existence into the existence created by our brand, our product, our experience, our place, and giving them stuff to do, right, stuff to discover. And then they return, right? Right, They exit, they leave, they're reborn. So it's a really fun model to think about this archetype and how that can apply to design. Right, and that prompts a million questions. But before I just jump into them, can you give an example of what you mean of how this kind of journey would open up a way to think about a design? So imagine going to Ikea. Have you been to Ikea? I have, but not for many years for a very good reason. But you can probably remember it. It's a very memorable experience that is very much designed. I remember I was rewarded with a hot dog at the end. Yes, a low-cost hot dog. A low-cost hot dog, yeah. That is basically given away to people (laughs) so that they can survive the ordeal of Ikea, Mm -hmm. which is a multi-part, long-term commitment in your weekend, Mm -hmm. right, to spend time at Ikea. And so when you enter Ikea, you definitely have a feeling that you are in a new place, right? It's a branded environment with the blue and the yellow and the graphics everywhere and the sense of you're transported, you know, up the stairs. It's a very specific journey. Some people describe it as being like in a maze, but actually it's not a maze, it's a labyrinth. So a maze is a puzzle, like a place that's designed to confuse you, right? It's where you go to die at the end of The Shining. 
But a labyrinth is actually a fixed path. And that's what IKEA is creating, is a specific path that people have to journey through where they encounter all kinds of things that they weren't expecting. So if you're going to buy an office chair, you still have to go through the living room to get there. Right. And all of those things are like stage sets. They're like like little scenes right. exposing you to potential. Right. And that's a very guided experience that is deliberately created to have a certain effect on people. In your description, what I'm so interested in is that world that the character finds him or herself in, in the middle. I remember my teacher, Northrop Fry called it the green world mm. in Shakespearean yes. comedy, right? Yes. You get into yes. it where in romantic comedy and where identities get confused and pairings get mixed up and, and there's all this turmoil and turbulence and trouble and struggle, but somehow you work your way to the end and a new order is born. And Fry talks about that new order that comes through at the end of Shakespeare comedies. I'll just add one quick footnote because it might be interesting later. There's always somebody who's not part of that new world, right? Malvolio's not part of that new world at the end of Twelfth Night, and Jaques isn't part of that new world at the end of As You Like It. And it kind of portends something else is going to happen down the line, Mm. which could have a kind of tragic dimension too. Okay, we'll put that as a footnote. Beautiful. So in Ikea... That middle space, is that designed in, do you think, to that experience in Ikea? Because I certainly feel the exhaustion part of it when I go through it. Well, there's, there's definitely an intention to keep people there as long as possible. Mm. Um, and to support that, there are things like childcare and meatballs, things that make, make you comfortable, that sustain you, that allow you to be there for longer for the purpose of exposing you to more products, more things that you might take home and change your life with. Lighting, bedding, rugs, things that you didn't necessarily expect to uh, to take a look at. I don't know if that answers your question. Well, it is a place that, for me, and I may not be the right consumer for IKEA, but for me, that middle world is a world of confusion. I get overwhelmed. I get distracted because I came to get a desk, but I'm way more interested in the sofas. And then, oh, look at those kitchens. And, huh, that faucet only costs that. And I get preoccupied with so much stimuli and so much information that I am like in this world where I lose my bearings. Yes, and and rather like a Las Vegas casino, there is an attempt to create this place where you lose... contact with the outside world. And you've entered, yes, the green world, right? This uh, magical place that has different laws and different rules and different expectations than what's out on the parking lot, right? right? You are in a a different place. And I think that it's very deliberate to shut out the outside and to create this, um, this new world, complete with the vignettes, right? The special environments and sort of complete Ikea lifestyles represented um, that, you know, help to make it not just products, but products where you can imagine how you would live with them. Strongly suggestive of all kinds of things, right? Right. They they become narrative. When you put a couch 
yeah. in a room with all the right stuff. And I becomes... guess if it works, the confusion leads you to buy that faucet, even though you came in for the desk, right? Well, it's a very successful retail operation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing that intrigues me about your idea, too, is you, you follow sort of one kind of uh, linear form of narrative, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering, and this may or may not be relevant to what you think about, but if you begin to think about other forms of narrative, narratives that have subplots, narratives that are nonlinear or parallel, as you would find in certain kinds of novels or certain kinds of great Mm -hmm. plays, does that, to you, do you think enhance and enrich this sense of design of storytelling? Do you think that's a parallel as well? Or is it really, are you really much more concerned with this arc that you describe? No, I think that nonlinear opportunities are very important, too. And I think that one of the questions that we as designers have to ask when we look at what we're creating is, is to what degree are we trying to create a controlled path? Mm. And to what degree are we creating the opportunity for freedom? Mm. And it's been demonstrated that too much freedom and too much choice confuses people, upsets them, overwhelms them. They throw up their hands. I don't want to do this. On the other hand, you can go too far in the other direction and over control, right? right? Create too much of a labyrinth, too much of a fixed path. And that idea of the path is a big theme in my book, that so many things that we make, if not everything, is about a path. Uh, that users are always taking a journey, whether it's, you know, with the apps on your phone or on a bike path through a city. And designers are creating the environment, the signage, the cues, the explanations, the prompts to get people to either do something particular or to create the opportunity for their free choice. Quite wonderful. And sometimes I think about designing education that way, too. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've talked in the past about sometimes the over-controlling comes in the form of requirements, which comes from a very good place on the part of us all who want our students to know A, B, C, D, E. But sometimes over-controlling their experience doesn't let them have that path and the exploration and the freedom and the discoveries and the surprises that can come from building that frame Mm -hmm. or that path and letting them somehow find their ways and letting the wind blow through it a little bit. Yeah. It's a great analog, and th- an education is something that's designed. It's a it product, is absolutely designed, and yeah. it has to yeah. be designed in terms of how to and curriculum, your users understand it. Right, and curriculum is it. a design problem, interestingly. So yeah. absolutely, maybe there is a divergent path. Maybe there is a road not taken within the context of what we're building, and that may be a, a very interesting layer. An escape route. An escape route. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, a good IKEA user knows how to avoid lighting. You know that there oh, is see, a little yeah, yeah. passageway there where yeah. you can sidestep that and get to your hot dog fast. Well, maybe it's volume two of your book, but it'd be interesting to look at other forms of narrative too and and understand, because I think the way you approach it is really quite fascinating. The other thing that I picked up from the book that I think is really interesting I'd love to get you to talk about is this notion of how we see with our ears and we hear with our Mm -hmm. touch and this whole notion of synesthesia and how it operates in design and why that's so significant to what you're talking about. So you want to riff on that for a moment? Sure. So if you ever take a creative writing class, which which I have, have done and actually sort of inspired me to do this book, uh, one of the things the teacher will say is you have to have um, sensory description. 
And by that, they mean not what things look like, mm. right? So as we, as we write and describe things, the impulse is always to, to describe what they look like. And this is true for designers, too, that we are trained in art schools. We're told that we're visual artists. There's this whole emphasis on form, color, line, texture. And yet, sensory experience is so much more than that. It's sound. It's temperature. It's weight. It's how your body feels in the chair. It's the sense of a periphery, right? This whole immersion of the body in space. And so getting people to think about the sensory quality of design is, to me, super exciting and, and connects to the world of great storytelling, mm. which makes people feel something, not just see it, but feel it in a much richer way. So pay attention when you're reading, you know, The New Yorker or anything, for that element of where the writer is able to put you in a more sensory world. And designers should totally be able to nail this because we work with materials and things that you can really touch and things that do make sound and have weight and have this physical presence. Right. And so much of a user's interaction with things, think about a car, is about your body and how your body interacts with the object, yeah. not just what does yeah. it look like. Absolutely. But what I love about the way you go about it in the book is that you talk about colors that taste sweet, right? <laughs> or that are loud. We all use that yeah. language all the time, that, that color's too loud, that color's too hot, that color's too cool. This human capacity to link the senses in all these interesting ways, to me, is fascinating. Gombrich talks about this in an essay he wrote once where he, he talks about this parlor game called ping and pong, and you have to make associations with it, right? And the one question I remember, I haven't looked at this for a long time, is if I said to you, there's a mouse and there's an elephant, which is ping and which is pong, what would you say? Definitely the mouse is ping. Absolutely. Yeah. I can't imagine anybody saying anything totally, differently. Right. Yeah. And so that's a great illustration of the very mm -hmm. thing that you're talking about, right? And you can create those kinds of things and use this human capacity to travel the senses in really fascinating ways, right? Absolutely. And that interaction of the senses, the gestalt of how they of course, connect, right. right? How an object is not just its color but is weight, color, sound, temperature, all right. those things right. together, and we perceive them as one. Right, exactly. With this particular book, because you've written several and done such great work in the past, is this a breakthrough for you somehow? Are you trying to get this to a different kind of audience or trying to get people yeah, to wrestle with a different yeah. kind of idea from your past work? I'm really excited about this book because I, I believe it's a view of design in a very expansive way. Yeah that it isn't just graphic design, it isn't just product design. It's design in the way that it's practiced now, which is really experience design. And that this is a book that offers a vocabulary and a set of tools and thought games and provocations that relate to people designing in any medium. And I think that's really cool. It's not about fonts. It's not about kerning. It's about these kind of big picture thoughts about what we do and why. Right. And might even be helpful the other way, too, to people who write and who can think about 
You that know, would be that super kind of, exciting so to me. It's mutually nourishing. It's not just a one-way street, really. The question I'm trying to wrestle with is how we know things in a specific way from the way we make them. I'm interested in Alexander Calder saying he thinks in wire, which echoes Beautiful. actually some of your titles, right, about thinking with typography. Yes, thinking with types. And by the way, them. just let me digress for a minute that the homage to Leonard Cohen, I'm a huge Leonard Cohen nut, right? And the homage to Leonard Cohen in your title, Beautiful Users, is endeared you to me immediately. So. <laughs> A lot of people didn't pick that up. Oh, I really well, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty great. So I'm interested in that. I'm interested in how we know both only by entering the process, we know what it is we want to make or we want to create. I'd love to know for you, if you do make sense mm -hmm. of this make-to-know process, how totally, would you, how would you totally. talk about it? So w one of the keys to how I work and something that makes my work more light-footed or more efficient, to use a productivity term, than maybe other people in my field, other museum curators, let's say, is that because I'm trained as a designer, I have the ability to directly manipulate content. So I can take a text and see it on the page and take it from the page to publishing or to the wall or to vinyl or to the website or whatever, as opposed to being a, a writer or a content maker who has to rely entirely on other people to do that. So it, it makes my work very um, immediate as a process. So, for example, the book Design is Storytelling, it was all written in, in design on the page. And I, so I was able to see how, how much room something takes up and how it relates to the illustration and what part should be pulled out to be a caption as opposed to main text or what should be a headline. It sounds very mundane, which it is, but it's very empowering because right. instead of just looking at a Word doc, which is a very linear thing that you get lost in, you're constantly immersed in kind of the reality of it as media that people That's will great. read and interact with. Right. When you started off on the process of your book, did you already know what you wanted to say about storytelling? Or did it come <laughs> as you were making the book? Well, it's some of both. I certainly had a plan. I had a an argument about design and storytelling and action and representation. I had a very specific core idea about it. But then I let it kind of build out in pieces in these kind of small chunks because there are no big projects. There are only lots of aggregate projects mm -hmm. that become big. And if you don't think that way, then you'll never get anything done mm -hmm. because each day you can only do a little bit. So by breaking anything down into smaller pieces, that's super helpful to me. I'm interested in how creative people talk about that space because that's kind of the beginning, right? But it's sort of what you were saying earlier about the experience you create for your users. If you overdetermine it, it you get one result. If you 
leave it too loose, you probably get another result. And how do you sort of make that frame so you can go in and make the discoveries? Right. But this time as the creator, as the writer, as the designer, and actually it was a question I had for you earlier too, is is the experience just for the user or does the designer go through a process of creating that path, that story, and discover it as she's making it? Yes. I mean, the designer has a journey as well, but that gets kind of lost. I mean, I don't remember now writing the book. The minute someone hands me the printed thing, my whole memory of making it goes away. Mm -hmm. And now the reality is what's there. Right, right. What's there. As a writer, I know that nobody reads anything from front to back. Even I have never read the book from front to back. No human being, only the proofreader ever did that. And even proofreaders tend to read backwards, you know, because you catch more errors if you go backwards. Or read it out loud. Yeah. (laughs) That you're creating a thing that people are going to pick and choose and find their way. and, And that's kind of fun. So then you have to create a world that has signage and that gives people, you know, places to stop, right? right? That entices them to stop somewhere. One of the questions that keeps on arising for me as I talk about this is the popular notion of the great artist or designer who has a vision and holds that vision internally in their Mm. heads or in their bodies or in their (laughs) hearts, I don't know. And actually the work of the artist is to manifest that vision. Where does that come from? (laughs) Well, you know, when I was a kid, I read the great biography of Michelangelo. What was it? The uh, the Agony and the Ecstasy. That's the book. The Agony and the Ecstasy. And it was all about Michelangelo releasing Moses from the stone. Exactly. That, like, the sculpture was already in the marble. Right. And he's there to kind of release it. And I guess that is similar to what you're saying, this kind of this perfect crystal thing that's there to be unlocked. As opposed to this um, exchange between the artist and the material, you have to get it out of your head and onto paper or screen or whatever. That the notion that oh, it's all I'm thinking about it. To me, there is no thinking without actually writing or actually talking or mm-hmm. sketching or mm-hmm. making lists or doing a drawing or doing a painting. You have to actually get it out of your head. It really doesn't exist in your head. Right. And it's a different, maybe it's also an interesting parallel to synesthesia that we were talking about earlier. Tim Brown uh, has this great quote of saying, instead of uh, thinking what we need to build, we need to build in order to know what we think and how, how we think or in order to think. I might have just butchered that quote. but it, Well, the you prototyping, get, the, the most simple yeah, prototype and, and gives the, you something the, to work the with. The playing with it and the openness to it that really gets you to a way of knowing it. That's really interesting. The interaction with materials, and you've talked a lot about this and you've written about this. How did you learn from materials and know from materials and engage with materials and enter into a dialogue maybe with materials, if any of that makes sense to you? I don't think I'm the ideal person to talk to about that because I'm so much more of a writer and 2D person than um, a product designer and architect who's really building things with rock or resin or 3D sand or whatever it might be. But you are um, ideal because you understand 
graphic design, you understand letters, <laughs> you understand letter form, you understand typography, you understand... Right, those are materials, those are, Right, right. Mm -hmm. Widely, exactly, widely defined. If you begin mm -hmm. to think about it then, does something open up for you on that? Yeah, I mean, for me, language is a material because it's something that exists, it's outside of us. We didn't make it, right? It's there, but we have to shape it. We have to grab it and make it do what we want it to do. And it's a tremendous force. It's like the ocean. It's so powerful. And spoken language is particularly interesting in this context, right? Mm. Because when we speak, we don't really know what's going to come out. I know. It's terrifying. <laughs> right? And there's something fundamentally improvisational about speaking, mm -hmm. right? That we have the words, we have the skill, that the language systems we use creates that kind of frame. The box. The box, right. right? Exactly. But the language we use, it's only made as we say it, and the saying is itself a kind of making, mm -hmm. right? It's taking it out of your head. Mm -hmm. It's so much different from just thinking. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about the body? Are you aware in your work at all of ways in which the body guides you? I guess you've talked yeah, about some of Yeah, I mean, I do a lot already. of public yeah. speaking. And, um, you know, I, there's certain things I've learned, like don't stand behind a podium because people can't see your body. Mm. And it's harder for them to understand what you're saying if they can't see you. Mm. That speech isn't just oral. It isn't just aural. It is a physical act. And right. if people can see your face and your arms and your legs... They actually understand better what you're saying. Right, right. And some speakers, especially I've noticed women, hide behind the podium and hide behind their laptop because there's comfort in not being as visible. But it's actually better for the audience if they can see you because they understand better. Mm -hmm. It parallels uh, acting classes. And I had an acting teacher who used to say, you're performing from the neck up, you know. Ah. In fact, that was probably why I was a terrible actor. I was too caught in my head, right? And that, <laughs> that the body does have to participate and guide it. And mm -hmm. I'm interested in how that happens with designers. I'm interested in how that happens with painters beyond Jackson Pollock. I'm interested in how the body is part of that making system that we employ as human beings mm -hmm. to discover and to know things. And designers present a really interesting challenge where that's concerned, right? I'm talking about the inventive phase of it, not mm -hmm. so much the production phase. Right, right. Yeah, well, any drawing is a gesture. It is. And digital drawing just as much as drawing with a pencil. You're moving your body, creating points in space. Thinking, so thinking with your hands, thinking with Totally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nigel Cross writes about designerly ways of knowing. Yes. Uh huh. Does that resonate for you? Yeah, well, if I recall that book correctly, he's distinguishing designerly ways of knowing from scientific. And that the scientist is, begins with a hypothesis and then does tests to see if that hypothesis is true. Mm -hmm. And the designer is more approaching the unknown and not trying to prove one thing or another, but heading down a path with an unknown outcome. Right. Which is the thesis of your book in a kind mm -hmm. of interesting way, right? Yeah. If you think about yourself as a teacher, does this kind of make-to-know idea, the idea of creating the 
the edges, the frame? Does this make sense for how you teach? Absolutely, absolutely. And one of the things I struggle with, especially with my second-year grad students who are in the midst of thesis projects, is often we'll sit down and they're like, well, I'm still thinking, I'm still thinking. And that's a trap, Mm. the thinking trap. And is the answer start making? You have to start making. And making can be writing a few sentences, making a list, brainstorming. It doesn't have to be physically making a thing, but it can't just be thinking. I wanted to ask you about DIY. Mm -hmm. And I know how you've used it. in in Mm -hmm. The D is both design and do-it-yourself. Clearly, technology has taken us to a certain place where people can Mm -hmm. do it themselves. But there's also simultaneously this maker movement that has become such a Mm -hmm. major part of our world right now. And with all this conversation and this thinking and this these conversations I'm having about making, I'm interested in that. I'm interested in the the DIY maker movement kinds of things and why you think that has taken on with such gusto in our world. Well, people want to have agency. They want to be able to change their own environment, publish their own content grow their own food, you know, there's a whole interest that people have to be less passive as consumers and to be more engaged. Mm -hmm. And the digital tools that we have available have enabled that, made it easier for people to, um, say, mix their own audio or shoot and edit video. These are things that were so difficult 20 years ago and that now... The tools are basically free and available to do this stuff, and there's endless resources for learning how to do it as well. And it's just, I think it's an amazing thing. It's just very exciting to watch and to participate in. It is, and there's an energy behind it now. Of course, I'm trying to think about it as, is that how people are learning today? Is that how people know today? Because they're becoming increasingly makers, and there are all these great tools and opportunities for them to do it. So it's both that kind of instinct or impulse. Yes, and I think that people are much more interested in knowing how to do something than to just know about it. Mm -hmm. That people want a more active engagement with knowledge as opposed to just reading. You know, they want to be in it. They want to be actively doing stuff. Right. What people can do when they do specialize and go to great schools like the ones we work at, they can learn skill, they can get really good at something. It's like the Malcolm Gladwell notion of 10,000 hours, right? Really develop that kind of skill base so that, for me, there a kind of freedom comes from being rooted in that skill, like any great mm-hmm. jazz musician, right, who can improvise because uh, he or she knows that instrument cold. And so the maker movement is interesting that way because it is skill development, but not skill development with the rigor that we would expect of our students necessarily. Yeah, maybe. But there's also being a generalist and learning this kind of bigger ways of creative thinking that maybe aren't medium-specific and that could take you from furniture to painting to sculpture to video. And I think we're seeing a lot of that too, that it isn't just mastering a particular, you know, egg tempera, but actually having these tools for being a very diverse creator. Mm -hmm. And hopefully with all of this development too, there's an interest in this book that you've just put out, 
design and storytelling, right? I mean, I think that there's opportunities now and there's an interest because we have a population of makers now in a way we never did mm-hmm. before. What attracted me to storytelling is that it's such a universal thing. It's what makes us human. It's right. one of those fundamental human things. Right, right. And yet it has principles and theories and repeated patterns that can be studied. So on the one hand, it's everywhere. And at the same time, it's something we can learn about and get better at. And so that to me is the perfect storm of a topic. Great. As we conclude, one of the questions that I really like to ask people I talk to has to do with the question of change. So uh, I'm interested if, if, if you're able to talk about how you think about how you create change, how you influence change in your work. Well, I hope that I have been able to offer tools for thinking to people through my books, through teaching, through being a museum curator. I often meet people who say, oh, I, the first time I ever understood what design was, it was thinking with type, my, my type book. And that really means a lot to me because that book and many of my other books are intended to be invitations to enter the practice. They're not mystifying. They're not Talmudic, uh, deep discussions intended for only the smartest people on the planet. They are openings. They are meant to be invitations. And when I'm writing these books... I'm really thinking about a reader, and I meet my readers. You know, I go out. Last night I was at the Strand. My readers are really young people. They're not professors. They're people working in the field. They're students and young professionals who who want to engage. Um, and I, that those are my people, and I hope that I have helped them in some way. And I know they help me. I, I learned from them. Sure. That's modest. Well, it's maybe modest, but it's quite profound, I think. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for being here, and thank you for doing this. It was delightful. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Change Lab. The best way to support the show is to share it with your community. And please feel free to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or the Apple Podcasts app. For a deeper dive into the astonishing creativity and innovation coming out of Art Center, please visit our website at artcenter.edu. Thanks for listening. Thank you.